We're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 2. We're going to continue with our study of heresy, false teachers, false prophets. And uh, last week what we talked about was the destructiveness of false teachers and, and what heresy is because that's what false teachers teach is heresy. And heresy is something that goes against the doctrine of the apostles here, which we find in the Bible. Now, if you were with us, I don't remember time frames really well, but it was a while ago when we were in the book of Ephesians. I believe that was like over a year ago. Uh, we spent two weeks just on one verse in Ephesians chapter 6 talking about the belt of truth. How many of you guys were here for that? Okay, great. So about half of you. And we spent about one of those weeks talking about how to study and teach the Bible and how, you know, there's various ways, but there's two main ways of doing that. And the, the technical words and terms for it is eisegesis and exegesis, right? And so uh, what happens nowadays in our, our modern society when it comes to teaching the word of God, eisegesis is used a lot. Now, let me try to explain it really quick so we can kind of jump into this. Eisegetically studying the word of God or even teaching it is you going in with preconceived notions and making the Bible fit that, right? Is you pl- basically, you're placing you and what you want into the Word of God. And you can make the Bible say anything you want, right, using that type of, of logic. So you'll see a lot of modern preachers, and you may not catch it unless you're actually looking for it, is that, and I'll give you an example, because I said his name last week, I feel comfortable saying it again this week, uh, Stephen Furtick, right? with Elevation Church. He, he's very good at eisegesis, and it's, it's all about you, you, you in the text, right? So you are David who is fighting Goliath. And that's the wrong way to read the text because it's not meant to be that way because then the focus is on you. But really, the text is pointing to Jesus, right? Now, we find benefits in the Word of God for us, but we have to remember it's not about us. So we don't determine what doctrine is, right? It, it doesn't come from my ideas, my thoughts, And that's exactly what heresy is, is that you're choosing, and that's why we have so many different sects and doctrines and uh, denominations within just Christianity itself, is because there's a choosing of how you want it to to come off, right? But, But exegesis is where I study the Bible and I teach the Bible in a way that I go in with no preconceived notions, right? I don't want it to fit what I think. I want it to teach me, right? I want to be changed by it. I don't want to change it. Right? The Bible is doctrine itself. I don't need to add anything or take anything away from it. So that's just surface level uh, explaining what that is. So it's important that we understand that, that the Bible is not about us. It's for us, but it's not about us. That there's certain ways and there's proper ways. And just because somebody claims to be a Christian or they are sitting at a pulpit with the actual, an actual Bible doesn't mean that they're always teaching it the proper way. And I think sometimes we, we, we forget that, even with music, right, Christian music. I think sometimes we think, oh, it's, it's labeled Christian, it sounds Christian, but is it really doctrinally correct? Because there are songs that are heretical. I'll give you one example really quick. I feel comfortable saying it because I've already said it before, is reckless love, right? That is not theologically correct. But because it's played on his radio and K-Love and, and sometimes people sing it in church, as you've probably noticed, we don't sing it in our church. Um, I think there's a right way to make that song correct, but it's not correct. 
And, that's, and it's important. You may think, well, man, that's, why are you guys so stingy about that? Jesus told us specifically that true worshipers of God worship how? In spirit and in truth. They both go hand in hand. You can't take one apart from the other. I'd love to teach about that, but I don't have time for that. But truth is, is vital to that. It's, it's one part of the coin, right? The coin has two sides. So one of that is, is truth. And so we have to understand that we have to worship in spirit and truth. So what we sing and what we say has to line up doctrinally and theologically with the truth, which is God's word. And what we come to find out as we look through God's word is that God's, God's love is not reckless, right? It's, it's uh, intentional, right? And it's perfect. Nowhere in the word of God does it speak of it as being reckless. So we have to be very careful of that. Um, so we talked about heresy. We talked about the false teachers and the destruction of the false teachers. And Peter encouraged us in the end of it that uh, their destruction and that there is going to be a time to come where they will be judged, right? They're not just walking about freely with no consequences. There are consequences. Now, let me, let me challenge you with this, too. Anybody who teaches the word of God is held to a higher standard. Simply put, the word of God tells us that. Whether that's me here on this stage, Pastor Kevin on the pulpit over there, or it's you at home with a group of friends, right? We, we should not take it lightly when it comes to the word of God in how we voice sometimes our opinions. And our opinions should never be voiced in general, but how we share the word of God. It shouldn't just be done willy-nil right? It has to be uh, in, uh, purposeful, exegetically studied through, and it has to always point to Jesus Christ. And you will be held to a higher standard. I am held to a higher standard in, in the way that I live and the things that I know and the things that I teach, right? I mean, that, that's just common sense, correct? Yeah? Like, you, you have to live what you preach type thing? I mean, that's, that's exactly what this is. So, today what we're going to look at after Peter, again, has warned us of these false teachers and that they will arise, and he says they are among you, right? And they do it uh, secretly. Uh, they bring in destructive heresies. We even talked about how sometimes when they even preach these heresies, in verse 18, if you look really quick, it says when they speak, they speak great swelling words of emptiness. They allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. You know, have you ever just heard somebody, whether it's applied to the Word of God while teaching or just in general, where they say so much, but there is nothing to it, right? It's like, it's, it's like, oh my gosh, wow, like you just said so much, but what did you even just say, right? And again, I can think of Elevation Church and how they teach. It seems like so deep, but then when you really like, listen to it objectively, you're like, that doesn't really help or mean anything, right? So a lot of these false teachers uh, appeal to the lusts of our flesh. They appeal to, it's about me, 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 right? And how we're going to see in the word, it tells us that there's going to be false teachers who the people will raise up, right? That they want because they'll tickle their ears, <laughs> not like literally, but figuratively. Like, I, I, want, I want you to teach what I want to hear. I want you to tell me that I'm a good person. I want you to tell me that I'm going to overcome my haters. I want you to tell me 
that the Goliath in my life, I'm going to overcome and beat him, right? That's what I want to hear. I don't want you to tell me that I have to suffer. I don't want you to tell me that God's will is not always my will and that it's not always, you know, the easiest path, though it's always the best path. It's not the easiest path. I don't want you to tell me that the sin that I'm in is wrong and that it leads to destruction, that if I don't repent of it, that it's separating me from God. I don't want to hear that. I want you to tell me the good things and not the bad things. And what you will come to find out, too, is a lot of these false teachers never teach on repentance of sin, right? That there's, there is sin in your life, there's consequences to it, and that you must confess and repent. I mean, that's simple gospel story. And our confession and our repentance just doesn't end at salvation, right? We're continually being cleansed and sanctified. And there's always a need to confess and repent. Now, thankfully, we don't have to do it necessarily one to another, or we don't have to do it to a priest or a pastor or a bishop. We can simply come to Jesus and do that, right? He t- he, when he tore the veil from top to bottom, he said there's only one way to the Father, and that's through who? Himself, Jesus Christ. Not through a pastor, not through your parents, not through some high spiritual being. It's through Jesus Christ and him alone. It is the only path to the Father. And if you've seen Jesus, you have seen God. So what we're going to look at today in verses 1 through no, not sorry, not one. In verses 4 through 9, we've already seen the warning of false teachers. Now we're going to see their, their, their doom and their destruction, what they are going to face, their condemnation and their judgment from God. And Peter's going to give us three examples from the past of those who have received swift and righteous judgment from God. And Peter's basically going to say, look, if they received it, surely these false teachers and the ungodly will also receive it, right? Because, listen, we live in a world right now that it's, I mean, it's, it's upside down, right? I mean, every, everything that, that God has ordained and commanded, our culture and our society and us and people in general are trying to flip it upside down, right? We're fighting against uh, how God designed us sexually. We're fighting against how God designed us in our genders. We're fighting against um, so many, uh, right, like abortion, um, so many different things that go against the standard of God, right? Basically, what na- what's happening now is right is wrong and wrong is right. I mean, <laughs> that's, you guys see that, and I know you see that. And we live in, in a world where it's, it's hard. It is hard. Now, thankfully, we don't necessarily receive persecution, but we do live, and we go to school, and we go to places where we have to see this stuff, and we have to sometimes engage in it, and we have to be around it, and we're the only ones trying to live justly in an unjust and ungodly world, and that can be hard, and so what we're going to see today is that there's actually an encouragement for us to continue walking faithfully in an unfaithful world, right? You may be, and you may feel like, and I'm sure you're not the only one, you may feel like you're the only one sometimes in a, in a group setting, whether that's with your friends or uh, at school, and all of them are walking ungodly, and you feel like you're the only one that's a Christian and trying to walk faithfully. I've felt that way before. I'm sure you have felt that way before. I'm sure all of us have, because that's why Peter's going to encourage us here in this text, to continue walking faithfully, because those who walk ungodly, they'll receive their punishment. And those who walk godly, God sees, and he protects, right? Right? 
So let's read verses 4 through 9 and let's discuss. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, now this is the first example, the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood of the world of the ungodly. Now that's the second example, Noah. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, that's the third example, into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. So let's look at this first example in verse 4. Peter says, uh, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Now, there's not much that is said about the circumstances of these angels' sin. But what we can do is we can look at Scripture to help us understand Scripture. So what we're going to look at is the book of Jude, which we referred to last week as well. In the book of Jude, it's only one chapter, so there's no chapter reference, but it's Jude 6. And Jude says this about these angels. He says, These angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he is reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So two things that we see with these angels is that they didn't keep their proper domain and they left their own abode. Now, what is he referring to and what is he talking about? Well, I think there's two ways of looking at this, the sin of angels. One can be looking at the original rebellion of the angels like we see with Lucifer, right, where he rebels against God. And we see and we find out in the word of God that one third of the angels followed suit with Lucifer, who we know as Satan, right? So one third of the angels. Now, how would we refer to those angels? We call them fallen angels. We call them demons, right? So that's the reference to that sin. But there's also the sin of Genesis chapter 6 and verses 1 through 2, or just Genesis 6 in general, when it talks about the sin of the sons of God. And anytime there's a reference of the sons of God, it has to do with angelic beings, not human beings, okay? So in these sons of God, I believe, are these angels that rebelled against God. And what we see in verses 1 and 2 is this. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to men, to them, that the sons of God, okay, these fallen angels, these angels that have sinned, saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Now, interesting, right? And we can get into a whole long discussion about this. But basically what happened is there's this, however it came about, there's this procreation between angelic beings and, and human beings, right? The sons of God took the daughters of men and what we see here is they took wives for themselves. And we see that there was this giant race that came from them that we call the Nephilim. And what happens is, is this. That I believe that Satan, from the very beginning, has been trying. Obviously, the main thing is he's been trying to stop the Messiah from coming. Correct? Like he, ever since Genesis chapter 3, 
when God's like, look, the, the, the seed of the woman is going to come and, and basically crush you, right? And basically, that is a reference, not to you or I, but to Jesus, that Jesus is going to come and, and, and crush you. He's going to defeat you, that when he dies and he rises again, that is when you are defeated. Victory is, is, is Jesus's. So because of that, Satan has been trying to stop that from happening. And we've seen it from then to the point that Jesus came. We see it with, um, with this example right here, where they're trying to t- taint the DNA and stop Jesus from coming, right? So Satan's tainting the DNA, and there's a mixture of uh, celestial and, and uh, angelic beings and human beings. Uh, then we see, obviously, that God wipes out the entire race, right? Because then we see only eight survive, which was Noah and his family because of the flood. We see that in Genesis 6 as well. Um, then we see, I'm just using a couple examples. There's many examples. We see with, uh, was it King Herod that decided to kill uh, the babies two and under, right? So there's that example. Um, I, I'm, I'm sure Herod was, uh, look, the Bible tells us everyone who is not of God is under the sway of the wicked one. Right, so I believe that Herod was under the sway of the wicked one when deciding that, hey, I'm going to kill all the kids under two because Herod was doing it for a selfish reason in the same way, and, and Satan uses Herod's selfish reason to uh, complete his purpose. Right? But obviously he couldn't do it because Satan's nothing compared to God. So uh, obviously God wins. And, um, but we see still the, the sin and the destruction that comes from all that. And I, I believe that even as, as Satan's trying to taint the line and the lineage, and he wasn't successful in do, doing it, he's still kind of doing that today where he's destroying the things that God has ordained and created. And we're seeing that with how our nation, our culture, worldwide, and even just in America, how uh, homosexuality and all these different sexual preferences and how there's more than two genders and you, know, you, you, you decide what you want right? Your truth is your truth, right? And nobody can argue with that, but it goes against what is actually true. It goes against what is actually designed by God, and and Satan is allowing this and pushing this, and everyone's under the sway of what he wants, and it's destroying the glory. It's not destroying, but it's, it's tainting what God has created, right? And Satan's trying to do that, and so there's the destruction of the family homes by misgendering and, and sexual orientation, where there's, instead of having a mother and father in the home, there's two mothers, or there's two fathers, or even uh, in the sense of, you know, divorce is up, right? I mean, I think it's like 50% or something like that, even amongst Christians. And, and that hurts the family, right? That hurts the children, I mean, the proper way that God had created family was a mother and a father and children, right? That a, a wife should leave his mother and father, her mother and father and cling to her husband, right? And that the, the, the children honor their father and mother. Now, you rarely see that nowadays, right? There's so many broken homes, and many of us in this room probably come from different broken homes where we have one, one parent. I, I came from one of them. I had a only my father. I've never met my birth mother, mother right? So it, it's not that it's, God, can't, God can redeem that, but it's not how God designed it. And it leads a lot of destruction in its path. And there's a lot of hurt, and there's a lot of brokenness, which God can redeem, and he will if you allow him, 
right? But again, Satan's out here trying to destroy these things that God has created. And so we see one example here in verse 4 of these angels who sinned. Now, what Peter tells us here in verse 4 is that God did not spare them, right? He did not spare them. What he did is he cast them down to hell, right, and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. So here we see one example of God's swift judgment with somebody who was ungodly and went against his commands. He swiftly punched them. He cast them down to hell. Now, the word hell here in the Greek actually means uh, tar- Tartarus. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, it's actually not a Hebrew conception, but it's a Greek conception. Um, and it has to do with Greek mythology where it talks about the lowest hell. Right? So Peter's using Greek to explain that God cast them into the lowest hell. And what we find out as we study the word of God is that there's more than just hell itself. Right? What we come to find out is that hell is just almost a, a waiting room. Right? Hell, Hades, um, there's different names for it. Uh, I can't think of uh, Sheol, uh, some other names I can't think of. Um, but what we find out in Revelation is that portion of hell is actually one day going to be thrown into a final judgment called, anybody know? The lake of fire. There you go. We see this in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 14. It says this, then death and Hades, okay? Hades, hell, same thing, were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Now, if you go back about four verses in verse 10 of Revelation 20, uh, it talks about the devil, It says, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire as well, and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever, right? Now, hell is a very real thing, just as heaven is a very real thing, and now hell is also a a scary thing. It's not something where we arrogantly and ignorantly say and proclaim, well, I'm going to party in hell, right? You probably hear of people saying that. And that's not the case. We see uh, even just from the story of uh, the, rich, rich, uh, the rich man and Lazarus, right? How he just wanted a drop of water. You know, it talks about the weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, uh, Jesus says, Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Right, so the devil and his angels, the ones that followed him, the fallen angels, the ones who have sinned. Now, there are two-thirds of the angels who have not sinned. Right? Two-thirds of them who uh, bow down and worship God, that they are obedient to him. Now, this, this word hell in verse 4, again, translates to the word tardis. And there's very little uh, of what we know of it, but there's a few things that we can look at. Three things I want to look at with this, with this place. One, there are no humans in tardis, only fallen angels. Those in Tardis are bound by chains of darkness, so so there can't be flames of fire. It's dark there, and their restraint, can you give me water? Their restraint in chains is not forever, because what we come to find out is they are reserved unto judgment when they'll be released and judged, okay? So, let's continue. Now, by these angels who did not keep their proper place, right, they are now being kept in chains of darkness, and, and ironically, what these angels are trying to do, and it, and it correlates to us very well, is they're trying to find freedom and the pursuit of freedom by doing what they want to do, but we see the, uh, what it leads to, 
right? It leads to their, their destruction. It leads to their judgment. And it leads to them being in bondage. And, and the same goes for you and I, okay? There's a good correlation here. For those of us that want to seek freedom outside of Christ, a freedom in the sense of I want to do whatever I want, we are often led into, not often, we are always led into bondage. Now, it may not be literal shackles and chains, but a bondage to sin. And sometimes it's different types of sin, right? But there is a bondage nonetheless. You know, far too often we have this thought that me, me being free equates to me doing whatever I want. But listen, you being free in Christ is all about obedience, right? And not just obedience to anything, thank you, but obedience to Jesus, right? Does that mean that you're not going to be able to do everything you want? Yes, of course. But again, it's to your benefit, right? It's, your, it, it's no different than the simple rules that we he, have here in America, the simple laws, right? Like you have the law of wearing a seatbelt or not um, speeding. Well, you know, all of us at one point or another probably don't want to, we don't want to abide by those, right? We want to go 100 miles an hour. We don't want to wear a seatbelt. And there is a freedom to that, but there's also a destruction to that, right? You obviously know the outcomes of those things. But with Jesus, even more so, we have a freedom in, in him. So these angels are trying to seek their own freedom and pursue their own freedom, but it leads to their destruction. And here we see their bondage. They're delivered into the chains of darkness. And Jude 6 also describes it as an everlasting chains under darkness. And there they're going to remain again until they're reserved for judgment. Listen, I want to point this out, is that we can in some way almost sin worse than these angels did. In a way, okay, let me explain, or let me read a quote. Charles Spurgeon says this. This is interesting. He says, I answer that the devil never yet rejected free grace and dying love. The devil never yet struggled against the Holy Spirit in his own conscience. The devil never yet refused the mercy of God. These supreme pinnacles of wickedness are only reached by you who are hearers of the gospel and yet cast its precious message behind your backs. It's almost like this. The suffering that Jesus went through was worse than what we go through. How is that so? Well, when we go through suffering, what is the benefit that we have? Jesus, right? The Holy Spirit. In a sense, Jesus had to do it alone. Now, he was ministered to. And actually, who ministered to him? Well, we only see it one time, the night before his crucifixion, the angels came and ministered to Jesus, right? But So in a sense, we, 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 we ha we're, we're benefited because we have the Holy Spirit and Jesus with us while we suffer. And not only that, but he can relate to us because he's already done it himself, right? So we have this wonderful benefit. And so for us, when it comes to our sin, we obviously we know right and wrong. I know the angels knew right and wrong, but God has already sent Jesus for the perfect sacrifice. We have heard the gospel. It's almost in a sense that we are now held accountable for what we do, right? You are now held to a higher standard. And those of us who are born again and children of God are held to an even higher standard, right? It's just like when, you, uh, when, you, when your friends come over to your house, right, and they do something wrong, do your parents punish them the same way that they would punish you? No. Obviously, that would be kind of weird because it's, you know, they're not their kids. But they're not held to the same standard that you're held to in your own home to your own father and mother. 
So for us as children of God, we're held to a high standard, right? Because we have a father. We have a father who's instructed us and, and told us how to live and also has lived the way that he wants us to live. So this first example of these fallen angels is what Peter gives us for God's judgment, his righteous judgment, that, that they, will, they will not be spared, okay? And Peter's argument here is from the greater to the lesser. If God did not spare the angels who held, beheld his glory, they saw his glory, when they sinned, he will certainly punish false teachers and the ungodly who purposely lead his people astray. So now let's look at the second example in verse 5 with Noah. And here we see, Peter says, he did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people. Remember, it was him and his family. A preacher of righteousness, speaking of Noah, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. So the second example we see that we, and we know, because we, we've heard this, we've, most of us have grown up in Sunday school or even if you haven't, you've seen VeggieTales or something like that, that there was a flood, and the flood produced the rainbow, and the rainbow was the promise from God. It means nothing else. It was a promise from God that he will never do what he did here, uh, like we see in Genesis chapter 6. He will not flood the earth again. Um, so God used the flood to judge the ungodly, right? And you might think that's harsh, but when the whole world is ungodly, that's the judgment, Right? And God did spare those who were righteous. Now, how were they righteous? Were they good people? No, well, no, nobody's good, right? They were righteous because of faith. I mean, we see that with Abraham. We see that with Noah. They were accounted righteous because of their faith. And Noah had a faith in God, right? When God told him to build an ark in the middle of nowhere, never having seen rain before, well, that's, that's either really dumb or you're really faithful, right? And it's never dumb if it's God who's telling you what to do. But again, we see the faith which leads to Noah's righteousness. Um, and here we see it twice, or no, we see it one time that Noah is referred to a preacher of righteousness. So again, Peter's argument is from greater to lesser. If God destroyed the whole world because of their ungodliness, will he not destroy these false teachers who deny the Lord who bought them, which we saw earlier in last week's study. And the world was, was wicked. I mean, it was, it was wicked. I mean, it's, it's wicked now. And even though that we can see so much because we have social media and things, you know, we can see things happening like that and people record everything that's happening, yet there is still so much deception and hidden things that we don't see, right? I mean, when we think, think of this, when we think of drugs, um, human trafficking, uh, prostitution, I mean, those things are rampant. I mean, they make, uh, they make up billions, trillions of dollars worth in, in our economy, right? And yet, I mean, I've never visually seen that, except maybe a little bit when I went to Atlanta. Other than that, I've never seen human trafficking, yet there are, I, I don't know the numbers, so I didn't study that, but there's thousands, hundred thousands, I don't know, many women and men who are involved in that just in America itself, right? So our nation is, is just as wicked. Even our morals and what we're deciding and the things that we are, are leaning to is just as wicked now in the days of Noah. And it's not getting any better. I mean, it's not going to get better. And we have to understand that as, as followers of Jesus, that we don't follow in the way of the world. 
that we don't follow and, and try to uh, and try to be um, open-minded and loving in that sense and welcoming every thought and idea and truth. But no, we have to be closed-minded in the sense of this is the truth and this is the only thing I'm going to stick to. And if I'm like Noah and I'm only one of eight in the entire world that is faithful and righteous, then so be it. If I'm like um, Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah, which we're going to see in a second, then so be it. God sees and God notices, right? God sees and God notices. But God spared Noah, and that's a wonderful thing that we see. God spares Noah from the destruction and the judgment of the flood. You know, I, sometimes we can find uh, ourselves surrounded by the ungodly, but again, we can find the comfort in these verses because God takes notice of Noah, right? Noah was the only one who walked with God in the midst of a perverse generation. He did not lose sight. God did not lose sight of the godly, and he provided deliverance for them, right, by providing uh, an ark. So I want to encourage you to remain faithful, to remain faithful. The third example, last one, verse 6, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemn them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. Now, if you've never read uh, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, you might know bits and pieces of it, but it was a very perverse and wicked, uh, wicked cities. So much so that I'm going to read you just a quick example of how perverse that it was. But this judgment is described very vividly here in Genesis chapter 19, verses 24 through 28, how God turned them into ashes. Now, why was there such a terrible judgment? Well, Jude 7, okay, the next verse after 6, says it was because they had given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh. Again, this sounds like the world we live in right now. And the Lord said it was because of their sin, and their sin was very grievous. Genesis chapter 19, verses 4 through 11. Let me read this really quick of an example of their grievous sin and their sexual immorality. It says in verse 4, Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And this is the house of Lot. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Right? They just saw these guys walk in. Where are they? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. I want to explain that, what that is. You obviously hopefully know. So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brethren. And now Lot was not very, <laughs> didn't handle himself very well in this moment either. He said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let, them, uh, let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Now, if my dad did that to me, I'd be like, Peace. Uh, I have a better father waiting for me, not you, because that's pretty, pretty horrible. Um, only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. And they said, to, and they said, stand back. Then they said, this one came in to stay here, and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man lot and came near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door 
and they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. I mean, listen, if I'm in that position, I hope I never would be in that position, but if I'm in that position and they strike me with blindness, like I'm, I'm done trying to get what I wanted. But we see here is that they didn't stop. They didn't stop because of the blindness. They stopped because they got tired. So because they were so pulled by the desire of their flesh, they wanted what they wanted, and they wouldn't stop until they got it. Does that not sound like us? Does that not sound like our nation? That they were going after strange flesh, that there was sexual immorality being found in Sodom and Gomorrah? And we see the example, this third example of Sodom and Gomorrah, of the ungodliness, that they were condemned to destruction. And Peter says at the end of verse 6, in 2 Peter 2, is that the reason for this was to make an example of to those who afterward would live ungodly. And this is an example for us. This is a warning for us. But again, who did God spare? Lot, right? Lot, Lot and his family, his wife for a moment until she did what she did, turned into a pillar of salt. But we see with these three examples uh, of judgment, they show us how important it is for us. There, there's an important principle that Peter wants to highlight. So God judges the angels who sinned. So no one's too high to be judged, right? God judged the ancient world, right, in verse 5, before the flood. So God doesn't grade on a curve, right? It's not like, okay, well, all of us, you know, are going to receive the same judgment. No, he will spare the righteous even if it's just one, right? And God also judged Sodom and Gomorrah, so even the prosperous, because Sodom and Gomorrah was, was very prosperous, even the prosperous can be judged. So we have to understand that the ungodly have no reason to think that they can escape God's judgment, that certain judgment is coming. We cannot escape it. And there is a way to escape it, and that's through Jesus, right? And the only reason because of that is because he takes the punishment for us. We understand that it is Jesus who delivers us. It's God who delivered Noah. It's God who delivered Lot. And that's the wonderful thing. So let's look at verse 7. And he delivered a righteous Lot who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. Right? Lot. We got one guy here who was who righteous in the eyes of God. That's all that matters. He was righteous in the eyes of God. And he was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Did he say some dumb things? Did he make some dumb decisions? Of course, right? None of us are perfect. Lot was not perfect. But in the eyes of God, he was considered a righteous man. And the righteousness is, is based upon what Jesus has done. If we have Jesus, we have faith in Jesus. And it's all about the heart. So Lot had a, a, a righteousness to him. God delivers Lot from the uh, wicked oppression, the filthy conduct of the wicked. I love that. And Paul said, or Peter, I'm always going to mix those two up. Peter says that Lot's soul was tormented, right? But he failed to follow through with godly actions and separate himself and his family from the ungodliness of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? So although he was considered righteous, some of his actions and decisions were not really smart. I mean, when we think about it, when Lot's the only, him and his family are the only righteous within the city, I mean, why stay there? 
right? Why put yourself in that position to torment your soul? Verse 9, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. So even as God delivered Lot, he knows how to deliver you and I out of temptations we face, and he knows how to reserve the unjust for the day of judgment. Listen, we can trust in God's deliverance. He will deliver us out of the same situations, hopefully not verbatim, of the situations that Noah and Lot found themselves in. And so again, if anything from this, this short study is to know and be encouraged to remain faithful to God, no matter the surrounding circumstances, right? I mean, like, for example, let's say your own family isn't faithful, right? And that's a hard thing to, to go against the grain of your family, right? To, to be obedient to God and not your parents. And that's only when your parents are unfaithful. That's only when your parents are ungodly, okay? So there's going to be a challenge for you guys that you may be the only one in the room. You may be the only one at your school. You may be the only one in the world, which is not going to happen, but you may be the only one in the world who is found faithful. Continue to remain faithful. There is a horrible judgment to come to those who are unfaithful and don't know Jesus. And there is a blessing and reward to come to those who are. Maybe not in the life you live in now, but to come. The unjust are reserved under punishment. <laughs>